Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Practicing Clinicians Exchange and Pro-CE Pharmacy Practice Podcasts. I'm your host, Sarah Anderson. This episode features content from an educational webinar titled 2023 Update, Principles of Outpatient COVID-19 Management. During this podcast, Dr. Renzo Shearer, Professor of Medicine at the University of Chicago in Chicago, Illinois, and Dr. Trin Vu, Clinical Pharmacy Specialist at Emory University Hospital Midtown in Atlanta, Georgia, discuss updated information regarding COVID-19 testing, risk stratification, treatment options for acute COVID-19, and what we know to date about long COVID. To follow along with the accompanying slide set, please visit the link in the show notes for this episode. Now, let's get started and hear what Dr. Shear and Dr. Vu have to say about outpatient management of COVID-19. I just want to share and say, Dr. Shear and I are extremely excited to be back for round two of this presentation series. We had a great discussion on the first go-round. A lot has happened since the fall, so we're excited to present some new data, reinforce some key treatment strategies, and with that, we'll go again and get started. So we'll start off by discussing the current state of COVID-19, and what we know uh, right now is that the subvariant XBB 1.5 is the fastest rising subvariant, and it's more transmissible than prior subvariants, and this is because it has a higher ACE2 binding affinity and greater immune escape. And because of all of this, there's currently no effective monoclonal antibodies for, for prophylaxis or for treatment. But uh, fortunately, um, there's no clear evidence that um, XBB 1.5 has any greater virulence or um, severity of illness. Um, and then uh, since we last spoke, uh, there was also the introduction of the bivalent va vaccine. So um, uh, amongst those eligible, uptake of the vaccine booster, um, unfortunately, is low. So only 28% overall and just 47% in those aged um, over 65. Um, and so a study was conducted in Israel evaluating the effectiveness of the bivalent MRSA, or MRSA, um, mRNA uh, vaccine booster in patients uh, above 65. And this was a retrospective study uh, that evaluated 622,000 um, booster eligible <laughs> patients um, from September to December. And um, out of uh, that number, 85,000 did receive their booster. And out of those 85,000, 81% saw a reduction in hospitalization or death, and 86% saw um, a reduction in death. And so the numbers here tell us that the, the vaccine, the booster, is, is effective at reducing hosp hospitalization or death. But as we saw on the previous slide, um, uptake numbers are poor. Um, and so what we really want to emphasize is um, get the word out, um, encourage um, your, your patients and those you know who haven't gotten the booster yet to, to really get the booster. And we'll, um, throughout the presentation, we'll talk about um, how the uh, booster continues to provide benefits uh, in many ways. So if you are five years of age or older, and it's been at least two months since your last vaccine dose, then uh, you are eligible to receive a Pfizer or Moderna um, booster. Uh, and if you have a younger patient between the ages of six months to four years and they completed their Moderna primary series, uh, that patient would be eligible for a Moderna booster if it's been at least two months since their last vaccine dose. And of note, people who are immunocompromised uh, do have different 
primary series and booster recommendations. So highly encourage um, to uh, go on the CDC's website for those recommendations um, because they um, are constantly being up to date. So next we'll move on to testing and risk stratification. Early diagnosis and early testing is uh, important because the earlier you, you find out you, you have COVID, the sooner you can start treatment and um, increase your likelihood of preventing progression to severe disease. And so we have this uh, beautiful infographic here to remind everyone of the clinical utility of the rapid antigen test. So um, with the rapid antigen test, we should utilize it in patients who are symptomatic or have recently come in close contact with those who have tested positive. And if your test is negative, then you can consider repeating that test in three to five days if the patient is still symptomatic, or if, um, if you think it may be too early in the course to have uh, detected uh, a positive test. And then um, if the test does come back positive, then you want to interpret this as a true definitive positive and start um, your isolation process. And then of note, a long-standing positive test of over 10 days may just represent a non-infectious viral particle and patients may not actually be infectious um, at that time. So first you wanna assess what the patient's risk factors are for severe disease. And if the patient does not, then you wanna evaluate their symptoms. If the patient um, does not have moderate or severe dyspnea or any hypoxia, then uh, the patient does not uh, need any COVID-19 specific treatments, but you want to ensure uh, they have scheduled telehealth uh, visit follow-up. And, and if this uh, patient, again, does not have severe risk or risk factors for severe disease, but do um, have moderate or severe dyspnea or any hypoxia, then you actually want to, to refer them to the ED for escalation of care. And um, if your patient does have risk factors for severe disease, again, you want to think about symptoms. So um, does the patient have moderate or severe dyspnea or any hypoxia? And if the answer is no, then you want to evaluate when did those symptoms occur. If the symptoms occurred um, outside of the five-day window, then no um, oral um, antiviral treatments are indicated, but the patient may be a candidate for IV remdesivir, so you can um, discuss that with them to see if they qualify. And then um, if symptoms have occurred within five days, then patients may be a candidate for oral antiviral treatments. Um, either um, treatment that they receive, these patients should receive scheduled health, uh, telehealth follow-up to ensure their symptoms have not progressed and, and that um, they are uh, feeling better. And then if the patient does have risk factors for severe disease um, and does have moderate or severe dyspnea or any hypoxia, again, that patient should be referred to the ED for um, evaluation, possibly for escalation and care. And so um, I want to highlight is that you know, for any patient who have, uh, whether or not they have risk factors for severe disease, if they are showing signs of moderate or severe dyspnea or hy hypoxia, then um, there's no outpatient treatment that's currently recommended and you want to refer them to the ED. The, the outpatient treatment that we have for um, this patient population really is for those with severe disease without severe symptoms and um, uh, but are at risk for developing progressive disease. And that's where our treatment options come into play in the outpatient setting. So the very first thing we want to evaluate is <laughs> their risk factors. 
Um, and so what we do know is that age is the strongest risk factor for severe COVID-19. And, and we can see here on this slide, um, this shows a, a COVID-19 uh, death risk ratio for select age groups and for comorbid conditions. And in blue up top, uh, the death risk ratios are um, separated out based on the age groups. And we can see that as the age group increases, the death risk ratio also increases. And we want to highlight that patients above 65 years of age have a um, death risk ratio of 6.7 times. And that number continues to increase again as we, as we go up the age scale. And then when we compare that to the other comorbidities listed, the numbers are significantly uh, lower compared to um, age. So again, I want to emphasize that age is a very strong indicator of um, uh, or risk for developing severe COVID-19. Um, and then in the uh, two studies that we'll talk about later on as well, but the EPIC HR and Move Out trials, uh, they had some uh, uh, criteria for what they defined as high risk, and age over 60 was one of their um, criteria, along with others that are listed. And then um, some of the other uh, risk factors for uh, severe disease are listed and some of the ones I want to point out, which is important because um, these are these would be very common amongst the general population. So um, cardiac disease, um, diabetes, and this could be type 1 or type 2, um, uh, overweight or obesity, and if patients were a current or former smoker, uh, again, all of this puts them at high risk and uh, potentially could be a candidate for uh, an outpatient antiviral treatment. Now we'll shift gears and discuss what the guidelines recommend in terms of uh, treatment. So the NIH uh, guidelines uh, suggest the following for um, patients who are non-hospitalized with COVID-19. And so um, if patients have high risk of progressing to severe COVID-19 and are not requiring supplemental oxygen or hospitalization, then the NIH recommends, and this is in order of preference, um, nirmetsevir ritonavir within five days of symptom onset or remdesivir within seven days of symptom onset. Now, if, if and neither of these two um, options are available, then you can consider monopiravir within five days of symptom onset. And the IDSA and the NIH do have some recommendations against the treatment of non-hospitalized patients with COVID-19. So uh, the IDSA specifically mentions that uh, patients with COVID-19 or uh, in the and in the outpatient setting to recommend against hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine and ivermectin. Um, and then the NIH also has some recommendations against, and they also, uh, their rec recommendations are really dependent on the patient population. So um, if your patient is not requiring hospitalization or supplemental oxygen, then the NIH recommends against starting um, steroids. If uh, there's a patient who's been discharged from the inpatient setting who's otherwise stable and improving, and this is with or without supplemental oxygen, then the NIH recommends against continuing baricitinib, remdesivir, and dexamethasone after discharge. And then for all non-hospitalized patients, the NIH recommends against metformin. Um, although um, I will say if your patient is on metformin, um, for a non-COVID-19 condition, then of course they should continue this medication under the supervision of a healthcare professional. Dr. Sher, I'll go ahead and turn it over to you. Thanks so much, Trin. 
So th- thanks for a terrific review. I I think um, I'll just reinforce the points that you made, and at least two of them. One is that it's discouraging that um, vaccine uptake has slowed, particularly with our um, uh, with a booster that's available. And so triaging our efforts to uh, update vaccines, particularly for those who are over age 65, those who are immune compromised, or those who have substantial comorbidities, is clearly an effective use of time. I'm going to add some information that sort of adds an argument that you can use with your patients. Um, I think that's quite important. And I, I appreciate in your thinking of who's who fits this high risk, but non-hypoxemic and not, not with uh, rapid uh, ventilatory response. There are all these other reasons that a person who might have COVID would go to the emergency room. And I think that's it's important just to refresh our memory that you can present with a cold limb or a seizure or chest pain that's because of a myocardial infarction during an acute COVID episode. Lots of other reasons that somebody might need still to go to the emergency room. And it's uh, very important to tell them to do that. Uh, Others are intractable vomiting or high fever. So to make sure that we're just uh, selecting the right patients who should be cared for in the outpatient setting. And I see now that we do have some questions. So I'll come back to you, Trin. Um, One is how does metformin help with COVID? And uh, I'll start and then maybe you would add, I think the point of that IDSA slide is that actually there's no evidence that it does. There's been a few well-conducted clinical trials that have found that it adds no additional benefit. But if somebody's already taking um, metformin, then I think it's quite reasonable as a diabetic for them to continue that medication. Do you have any other um, information about metformin in use against COVID? Yeah. Um, um, so I think the spark with metformin in the first place was that there are some thoughts that it does have some possible anti-inflammatory um, effects and that it, it possibly could interfere with the um, translation uh, process of uh, antiviral uh, replication process. And so because of that, I think there was some spark and interest, but like Dr. Sherry said, and that's why uh, the IDSA also recommends against it is because the data have shown uh, no added benefit. Okay, here's another question. Um, My facilities had limited access to remdesivir in the outpatient use. Have there been national shortages? That's a great question. I am not aware of any national shortages. Uh, Of course, um, um, ASHP updates their shortage um, guidelines very frequently, but this is just not something I'm aware of at the moment. Okay. Um, I think it's a really uh, interesting question asked. When should we do a telehealth visit in this context? And maybe you'd speak to that, Jen. Yeah, uh, I'll speak to it. And then if you have anything else to add, of course. But um, um, once the patients have completed treatment, uh, probably within the uh, next week or so, the following week, just to make sure the um, treatment has been thoroughly completed. And that's the most important part. Um, if it is um, and their oral treatment option and show that patients did complete their five-day course. And then uh, within a week or two following that treatment, just to ensure um, they had no side effects or tolerate the, the treatment well, ensure they completed treatment and also that um, symptoms had not uh, progressed. Um, of course, if patients um, do have 
uh, progressing symptoms, then uh, they can reach out way before that time frame. But I think within uh, a week or two is is reasonable. Great. And anything I, else you add? Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I completely agree with the, the points that you made. And I see two additional questions that actually involve some of the material that I'm about to present on the question of shouldn't we be treating some standard risk patients too? There's some evidence of benefit. No, I'll cover that. And then a skeptical comment, if there are only 289 hospitalizations out of 600,000 people who were not boosted, that's a pretty low risk. So, you know, what are the risks associated with the use of the booster? I think referring to adverse events and um, the adverse event profile is exceptionally low. Um, so these are extremely well-tolerated uh, arthralgias and a low-grade temperature in a small fraction of people, and those are the most common. But the other incidents of serious, um, for example, myocarditis, are in the range of between one to 10 in a million people. So exceptionally low risk of severe adverse outcomes. But I think it would be a good idea to move ahead and then we'll get into some of those comments. I'm gonna move on to talk in a little more detail on the treatment options that uh, Trin has just shared with us. Just to remind everybody that we have several different phases of COVID. There's the early infection where it appears that it's viral replication that is causing most of the signs and symptoms, the lymphopenia, dry cough, fever, et cetera, where our goals really in this patient population, the ambulatory population is to reduce further extension of disease, hospitalization, and morbidity and mortality. And just to remind you that then most uh, patients will enter uh, a pulmonary phase if they are continuing to have clinical signs and symptoms. And that's about one-fifth out of everybody who's infected. And then even a smaller number who enter this hyperinflammatory phase where a number of other options have been shown to be effective. Um, for example, steroids and the use of some of the immunologically active agents. So we're focusing on this area in the box, treating early infection. And the reason that it's useful to look at this time frame is to remind clinicians about the limited amount of time within which to use these agents. As you heard um, from Dr. Vu, uh, they really need to be used within five days to be effective. And I think that's the take home point there. So this is a summary of three different studies that shows the relative benefit in terms of the reduction of hospitalization or death compared to placebo with the nermatrovir ritonavir when used either at, um, evaluated at three days after use or five days. And you can see extraordinary benefit, 89% overall reduction in the risk of hospitalization or death with nermatrovir and ritonavir, highly significant difference compared to placebo. The pine tree study with three days of remdesivir in um, high-risk patients who were mild to moderately ill with up to seven days of use, again, with a very high reduction of 87%. And then with the molnupiravir move-out study, again, with using that drug within the first five days, a reduction of 30%. So less impressive, less efficacious overall, but still um, active. And so for that reason, uh, as Trin mentioned, the NIH guidelines give us a hierarchy of recommendations, um, really based on what's easiest for us and for our patients to use with the least amount of uh, clinical encounters. 
So for non-hospitalized patients, for people at risk of progression, and I want to reinforce Trin's list of um, anyone over age 65, anyone with age 50 and substantial comorbidities, but understand that that comorbidity list includes, for example, juvenile onset diabetes. So I've treated people with juvenile onset diabetes in their 20s and 30s. That age limit is no barrier if someone has a substantial comorbidity that puts them at greater risk. Another example is pregnancy, and yet another is any immune-compromised host. So we really have a fairly large group of people. The second alternative is the IV remdesivir option that was shown in the pine tree study. But that is three over three different days as an outpatient administration to be used within seven days of symptom onset with very good evidence in support of its use. But it has to be administered in a healthcare setting, and there's logistic barriers for the use of that drug. And, you know, I think it's important the last bullet on this slide mentions that if you're triaging the use of these agents, clearly unvaccinated patients have the most to gain as compared to those who've been vaccinated. But I'm going to show you data that suggests that even in the presence of vaccination, there is substantial benefit. And so the alternate treatment, as we've talked about, if neither of those two are available, and um, there was a question earlier about the availability of remdesivir. We did have issues with distribution and shortage earlier in the epidemic. Most of those have been overcome, not all, but most. And so I, I would say you're more likely to have access to all three of these drugs in your uh, treatment area. So in the event that you don't have uh, nermatrovil, ritonavir, or remdesivir, then the malnupiravir option is mentioned that's uh, twice a day for five days for those who are over age 18. It has to be used um, like the nermatrovil, ritonavir, within five days of symptom onset for efficacy. It's clearly lower efficaciousness than uh, with the other two drugs. And it has a substantial black box warning for use in pregnancy. And when used in women of reproductive age, we should be sure that it's that uh, they're um, on effective contraception in that uh, in that limited setting. So, but because of the lower efficacy, the other two agents are clearly preferred. So, uh, there's evidence that's accumulated on symptom duration in that very first study that we talked about, the Epic SR. Um, those folks with substantial risk. There was not um, an endpoint of symptom alleviation in the first four days. In contrast to that, in both the remdesivir and the malnupiravir studies, there was um, significant shortening of uh, time to symptom relief and improvements in the severity of symptoms. And you can see that both that was true both in the pine tree study and also in the panoramic study, where there's improved time to recovery of 4.2 days as well as reduction in virus load. And that was in the setting of 94% of people uh, actually being vaccinated. So I'm, I'm gonna press ahead, unless Trin, are there any questions that I should take on now or should we go, keep going? I think we're getting some good questions. Um, so we can uh, tackle some, I think. Okay. Um, let's see, we have a, a, a question about vaccination. So how long would you recommend to wait after an episode of acute COVID to vaccinate with the booster? Yeah, um, it's a very good question. There's clear evidence of 
some level of natural immunity that there's a debate and actually a sort of bell-shaped curve on how much and how long it lasts. Two months seems to be a reasonable standard, both after vaccination as well as after a, um, a recent episode um, of, uh, of COVID-19. Okay. Um, and then we have some questions um, about rebound, which uh, we'll further discuss later in the presentation. So we'll address that. Um, we have a great question, and I'll, I'll read this one out to you. So um, okay. I'd be interested to see what your take is, and then I'll respond as well. But in my practice, I have had two patients refuse vaccinations, stating that one of their relatives died immediately after a vaccine. How do I respond to these statements? Uh, another barrier to vaccination and a reason for decline in vaccinations in my area are that people who are fully vaccinated and fully boosted are contracting COVID, even contracting it two times. They are questioning the efficacy of the vaccinations. Great. I want to take the second one first. This is nobody's fault, the sort of level of confusion among our patients, because we're used to vaccines preventing both the acquisition of, of a new infectious agent as well as reducing the severe consequences. Um, with, that, with that last question, you can use the influenza vaccine, which we've known for a long time is best at preventing death and preventing hospitalization. And while it reduces the chance that someone will contract influenza, it doesn't eliminate it. And what we've seen as we've lived now for three years with SARS-CoV-2 is that it's gotten smarter. These new mutations leading to Omicron their principal value for the virus has been to increase infectivity and to get around the impact of past viruses and of natural immunity. So um, we, 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 we understand that there's a small benefit in the use of current vaccines to reduce the chance of infection, but it's still very common, as has been seen, that people get vaccinated and they still contract it, which is annoying. So they have to deal with the likelihood of the potential for them to spread. There may be time off work needed. They're masking in the, um, and just the new, it, it's an annoying reality to have COVID yourself or in your family. But, um, and I'm going to reinforce this evidence, these, uh, the vaccines and the boosters are exceptionally effective at stopping, preventing the course of severe illness and death. And again, not they are not perfect at that. We are seeing that there are occasional patients with breakthrough who uh, who go on to have serious illness and even to have deaths. Those are largely over age over eighty and folks who have serious levels of immune compromise. But we don't want to let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And so one of the one of the ways that I tackle that is to say you don't want to go in the hospital. You don't want to have a serious illness, kidney failure, some of the other consequences of COVID, and the vaccines will prevent that for you, for you and your family, and uh, and your children and your loved ones. Um, it's a much harder answer for the first patient who says, "I had someone, friend of my, or a family member who got the vaccine and then had sudden death later." This actually came up with a very famous case of the athlete, the football player, who had that happen to them. Um, there are um, there are events that occur because we're vaccinating such a large number of people. They may have temporally related events where there's a sudden death from someone who's had a vaccine that's entirely unrelated. And that was the story in the case of the uh, of the athlete with uh, uh, with the, the Philadelphia Eagles. Um, it turned out that there wasn't even a vaccination proximal to that event. 
that was a very rare cardiac associated reason for a collapse and for, and of course it wasn't a death, it was a sudden cardiovascular collapse. So um, I, I think what you do in that setting is you present the evidence that we have, what is the, for a, the, for um, milder side effects and then for severe side effects, which are, it's a very important data set to have, but the rarity of those events means that the consequences of COVID, even in this era with vaccination, are much more serious and more likely to occur than a serious event with a vaccination. And I, I really appreciate that uh, that question. And maybe I'll suggest, Jen, we go ahead and cover that because I know there are a couple of these other questions that are, are related to the material I'm about to cover. Then we'll we'll get back to them. Comparing the, the three different antivirus viral medications that we've just talked about, with uh, nermatrovir and ritonavir, there are um, important drug interactions that are for the vast majority of patients, they're not deal breakers. They are something to think of and to take into account. And for the vast majority of them, we have good um, strategies for either temporarily holding medications or where we know people can be safely continued on their medication, but monitored. I'd say the red box here is just to illustrate the very significant importance of timing so that when these drugs are used, you really only have a five-day window to use nermatrovir or ritonavir or malnipiravir before that expires, and they're not going to do very much good. So you really want to make this decision in the first day or two following uh, infection in those folks who are at higher risk. And with remdesivir, uh, you have a couple more a grace period up to seven days before symptom onset. There's a few other things that are useful, I think, on this table. Occasional adverse events can be fullness in the belly and loose stool, which often are uh, addressed when you administer it with food. It's not much in the way of adverse events with malnupiravir, a little bit of nausea with remdesivir, but these are actually quite well-tolerated medications. There are adjustments for renal dosage in people um, with who are using nermatrovir and ritonavir that are mentioned there where you can adjust the dose. And at the very end of this, uh, people with chronic kidney disease and low glomerular filtration rates that are not recommended. Similarly, remdesivir is not recommended at the lowest uh, EGFR, though I believe there, there is evidence that that's, um, that that's changing. And that leads me, so again, I'd say the duration is the take-home point on this slide of doing, trying to get therapy decisions made and treatment within five days for nermatrovir and ritonavir or maldopiravir or seven days for remdesivir. So this EPIC HR, meaning the high-risk high risk, risk non-hospitalized patients, the study using nermatrovir and ritonavir, you can see that people were either randomized to a placebo or getting the drug twice a day for a period of five days. Um, in this case, people aged 18 to 59 with at least one or more comorbidity that might uh, predispose them to severe illness, with the primary endpoint being either hospitalization or death, and data were also collected on adverse events, and these were the outcomes. You can see that the numbers for those by day three, if they were started, there were five hospitalizations or deaths in the treatment group compared to 44 in the placebo arm and by day five, eight and 66, respectively. And if you look at deaths overall, there were no deaths in the treatment arm 
compared to nine in the placebo arm by day three and 12 by day five. And I, I that to me is very powerful information in support of the indication for a five days of a medication that can actually prevent deaths in a substantial number of people. Um, someone earlier said, yes, but there's a lot of people. And that's true. We were talking about in these cases, 697 in the first uh, group or a thousand total, but 12 deaths out of a thousand, that's 1%. So, uh, so that to me is a very strong reason to offer this to patients and to tell them of the need. And again, to reinforce that it has to be done within those first five days. So uh, it was asked earlier, why don't we treat standardized patients? And the reason, one of the reasons is in this cohort, very similar design, but this was a group of people who had standard risk, who didn't meet that high risk threshold, that the overall, who, and also um, were fully vaccinated. And you can see that the primary endpoint, that is symptom alleviation at four, after four days was not met. And there was um, a trend, a secondary endpoint towards a 62% decrease in medical visits, which was both ER and primary care visits. There was also a 57% reduction in hospitalizations or death, but there were very few events. So you can see that it was three out of 361 in the group that got treated, again, around that 1% figure compared to seven out of 360, either hospitalized or died. So that's 2% versus 1%. And I think you and your patients, if you're inclined to be very risk averse and want to take every step to avoid hospitalization, you could reasonably choose to treat in that setting. Let me go back to a point that Trin made. Um, this is really important, but again, I think this is rarely led to my not being able to use dermetrovir and ritonavir, which is the easiest to use because it's outpatient for our patients. On the left, there's a, the short list of drugs that are contraindicated. And I think some of these are quite important. For example, patients on cancer, cancer chemotherapy, it might be prudent in that setting to prefer remdesivir or malnipiravir. Um, and the, so the simultaneous administration is contraindicated. But for most drugs, they fall into this other category of either you can freely use, which is the majority, or you want to use them with caution. You want to monitor drug levels, for example, with digoxin, with methadone, with some immunosuppressants like tacrolimus. So in this case, always you're going to want to go through the interaction checker. You can see the Liverpool site where you put in the extra drug and it'll tell you how to manage that, whether it's withholding medications. For example, some of the statins are recommended that we hold lovastatin or atorvastatin for the five days and two days after the during the administration. But otherwise, the drugs can be used uh, in that setting. So there is there has been some more recent data. This is some of the newer data that Trin mentioned. This was a study from the New England Journal last year looking at nermetrovir and ritonavir in my age group, people over age 65. But this is during the Omicron era. And the majority of these folks you can see are those, the overall population, there's a 63% reduction in the risk of hospitalization. And in those who had no vaccination or one vaccine, that was even greater. That was an 85%. But if you look at those who were fully vaccinated at that time, still there was a 68% reduction in the risk of hospitalization. 
So, you know, to me, that's persuasive that that's enough benefit that five days of medication is is a very reasonable step to take. This was another bit of data from the CDC using uh, electronic uh, records out of almost 700,000 Americans over age 18 from April to September 2022, again, during the Omicron era, looking at hospitalization rates. And this sort of strategizes it by age over 65, where by far the greatest benefit was uh, was observed in uh, uh, like a 47% overall uh, improvement. But you see also benefits with those who were who are age 50 to 64 and age 18 to 49. So by far and away, there were more hospitalizations in the oldest age group. You can see that uh, in this in this group, there were 28% of people who received nermatrovir and ritonavir. And so the treatment clearly um, was beneficial in each of these groups. And the most marked improvement was in the age over 65, where it was 29.7 people in the treatment group compared to 68, so a, a substantial reduction. There were also impressive reductions in the range of more than a 50% reduction in the age group, just 50 to 64. So I think, again, in answer to that question that was raised earlier, shouldn't we be thinking about treating in some people who aren't over age 65, who may be over age 50? I know many clinicians have used that as their um, as their preferred threshold. So with that, I'm going to stop and turn this back over to Trin, and then we'll answer some questions when she's finished. Sounds great. Um, all right, so uh, now we'll move on and talk about um, remdesivir. So, and more specifically, the pine tree data for non-hospitalized high-risk individuals, and this was a, a randomized study um, conducted at 40, uh, 64 sites internationally, and patients were assigned to either receive uh, remdesivir or placebo in patients who tested uh, confirmed positive and um, had a symptom onset within seven days. Uh, and the primary uh, efficacy and, um, endpoint was a composite uh, COVID-19 hospitalization or all-cause mortality by day 28, and they also evaluated safety um, endpoints as well. And the data to support um, um, remdesivir's um, effectiveness is uh, it's strong. So uh, between the two arms, baseline characteristics were balanced. And um, in high-risk non-hospitalized participants, a three-day course of remdesivir prevented COVID-19-related um, medically attended visits, hospitalization, or death. And uh, more specifically, looking at the table on the right, um, the relative risk reduction of uh, COVID-19 related hospitalization or deaths uh, in patients who received remdesivir was 87%. Um, and there was no difference between remdesivir versus placebo in time-weighted average um, change in viral load by NP swabs. Um, and in terms of safety, remdesivir is a very, has a great safety profile, uh, well tolerated and uh, the most common side effects were nausea, headache and diarrhea. Um, again, just a, a very uh, highly tolerable um, medication. And as a matter of fact, if we're looking at um, the last um, uh, row, um, comparing remdesivir to placebo, there were actually more patients in the placebo arm who uh, experienced serious uh, treatment emergent adverse events. Now, um, in the data we saw, we, we see that remdesivir is proven to be efficacious and also has a safe um, 
um, safety profile, but uh, you always want to think about, well, how do I get this medication inside into my patient? So remdesivir, as we know, does come with some challenges and logistical barriers because the fact that it is a three-day daily um, IV infusion. And some things you want to uh, consider and, and some of these challenges are that uh, the location of infusion centers with availability. Um, patients need to have the uh, mode of transportation to travel to and from the infusion center. Um, and as these uh, patients who um, tested positive are entering these infusion centers, we're, we potentially could be risking exposure or exposure of um, COVID-19 to um, others who may be at the facility for a non-COVID reason. And then ensuring that there's adequate staffing um, to prepare the medications and to administer the medication. Um, there's also some payment and reimbursement structures that are uh, that could be unclear with remdesivir. Now, remdesivir, again, it has to be administered in a healthcare setting. And so there's different settings for infusion. It could be done in an inpatient hospitalization, outpatient infusion centers, skilled nursing facility, and home infusion. And fortunately, the, uh, the manufacturer does have some great resources available. So uh, there is advancing access. And this is, again, directly through the manufacturer. Uh, and uh, this could uh, help um, pay for uh, or provide financial assistance for some of your patients who may need uh, who may get remdesivir but need uh, assistance there. And there's also some information on, on coding, reimbursement, and ordering um, remdesivir as well. And then for uh, monopiravir, uh, we'll look at the move out trial, uh, which um, studied uh, in patients who are at risk and non-hospitalized with COVID-19. So uh, patients received monopiravir for uh, a five-day course. Uh, and again, these patients are tested positive, but their symptom onsets were within five days. And the inclusion criteria um, included patients aged um, 18 to 60 with at least one risk factor of developing severe disease and age over 60 um, was considered a risk factor. And then um, some of the primary endpoints were percentage of hospitalization and or death by day 29 and adverse events. And in the uh, final analysis from the study, um, it was found that in non-hospitalized at-risk patients with mild to moderate COVID-19 monopiravir uh, given for five days re reduced the risk of hospitalization or death by 30%. And monopiravir, as we know, did receive EUA um, approval uh, in December of uh, 2021, uh, but only for use as an alternative therapy if the um, other two agents are not accessible or clinically appropriate. Monopiravir, um, as previously mentioned, um, can cause um, uh, fetal harm. And so you, there are some pregnancy and contraception considerations um, when uh, you're thinking about monopiravir as a treatment option. So in uh, uh, females or persons of reproductive ability who's taken monopiravir, you want to ensure they have a reliable and consistent method of contraception during their course and, and four days after. And then for males, it would be a um, consistent method of, of contraception during their course, but also um, three months after completing their treatment course. Um, and uh, monopiravir is not recommended for use during pregnancy, again, because it can cause fetal harm. And um, if individuals are breastfeeding, you want to um, counsel them to uh, pump and discard their breast milk during their treatment course and four days after. All right, so next we'll move on and discuss rebound. There is a potential for symptom rebound following um, numetravir, ritonavir use. And so in a retrospective review 
um, conducted uh, at uh, the Mayo Clinic in patients who received nermatoviritonavir for mild to moderate um, COVID infection. Um, in this cohort, um, the median age was 63, and um, it was almost evenly split um, uh, male-female, but I want to highlight most of these patients were fully vaccinated, and uh, most patients also received nermatoviritonavir about one day following their positive test. Um, rebound is defined as a recurrence of COVID-19 symptoms following completion of five days of nermatoviritonavir. And what the study found was that only uh, out of uh, 483 uh, patients, only four experienced rebound. And again, all four were fully vaccinated. Um, the median time to rebound after treatment was nine days. Um, but it's important to note that all resolved without hospitalization or needing um, additional COVID-19 directed therapy. Um, all four um, just received uh, symptom targeted um, uh, treatments. And um, all four patients also um, had uh, multiple comorbidities. And then in another study, uh, this study wanted to evaluate um, not only nirmetrovir, ritonavir, but also monopiravir and, and its um, a rebound uh, effects. And so in a study of 13,000 adult patients who received either uh, monopiravir or nirmetrovir, ritonavir, what we found is that uh, in, for both oral antivirals, COVID-19 rebound increased with time after treatment. So we can see the um, the two um, antivirals listed side by side. Uh, the first number represents day seven and second number represents day 30. And I wanna point out there were more patients in the um, nirmetrovir ritonavir arm, uh, 11,000 patients in that arm comp compared to just 2,000. But again, we see that um, the rates of rebound infection, symptoms, and hospitalizations were higher um, at day uh, 30 than at day 7. Um, and also, what's important to note as well is numerically, um, rates of rebound infection, symptoms, and hospitalizations were actually higher in the uh, monopiravir arm. Um, and so this study just highlights the fact that I, I know nirmetrovir-ritonavir um, more frequently is associated with um, rebound, but the study just highlights that rebound is not unique to just nirmetrovir-ritonavir, and, and, and it can occur um, in patients um, after taking monopiravir as well. And then for, for rebound, uh, we know that um, it can occur in the presence or absence of antiviral therapy, and, and we'll actually discuss that um, in the later slides. Um, and But um, what we've seen is that it does occur at very low frequency. Um, it's important to point out that patients may still be infectious during this rebound period and that positive cultures can still persist um, after their treatment course. Um, and rebound is a phenomenon that is not well understood. There are lots of different theories out there to um, explain why this happens. And again, it's it's not fully understood and it may be multifactorial. And so it, it really can't easily be explained by impaired immunity or re resistance mutations alone. Um, and, and so um, a, a study was... Uh, uh, recently published, just a, a couple of weeks ago, actually, evaluating symptom and viral rebound in patients with untreated COVID-19. Um, and this um, study included 563 patients. And what we see um, in the graph on the right is that 31% of uh, patients who were untreated with COVID-19 did experience a viral uh, rebound with an increased viral load of, point, uh, of uh, over three logs copy. 
And then um, 13% or one in eight participants did experience high viral rebound. And this is defined as uh, a greater than five increase in log copies. And I think this is an important slide here from that same study. This slide shows the rates of symptom relapse and viral uh, rebound in patients with untreated acute COVID-19. And so we see um, uh, the diagram on the left shows uh, symptom and viral rebound after uh, study day zero. Um, and 26% um, of patients actually experienced a rebound and 13% experienced high level viral rebound, but only 3% experienced both. And the, the numbers are pretty similar uh, at day five, 22% experience symptom rebound and 7% experience high level viral rebound, but only 1% um, experience both. And I think um, the results of this study highlight that although um, waxing and waning of uh, residual symptoms is common um, after patients recover from COVID-19, um, the likelihood of experiencing symptom, symptom rebound and um, high-level rebound is, is a rare occurrence. And then we, and so that was rebound, and then uh, just want to quickly touch base on the monoclonal antibiotics. And so uh, as a, uh, addressed very earlier um, in the presentation, because of uh, the, the, the variants and the uh, evolution of these new variants, unfortunately, we've lost activity to, uh, the monoclonal antibodies uh, have lost activity to these new variants. and and. Um, tixagibumab, sugabumab, and uh, in uh, belvitibumab as well, both have shown to lose activity against BQ1, BQ11, and XBB. Um, and um, tixagibumab, sugabumab for pre-exposure prophylaxis is actually no longer authorized for use um, because of its data. Um, and then sutrovimab uh, also has lost activity against uh, the different variants. Um, and, and, and again, this just kind of um, highlights the fact that the variants are constantly evolving and um, unfortunately the, the agents that we did have available to help uh, prevent or treat um, are, uh, some are just no longer effective. And so I think it's very important to identify um, our patients who um, are at high risk to, um, to vaccinate, um, test early on to ensure they get uh, receive appropriate treatment within those five to seven day window um, because of this reason. And then a take home uh, point for acute COVID-19 is that um, the, the SARS-CoV-2 variants remain a serious public threat, continues to evolve, and what we ourselves have to adapt to its evolution. Uh, vaccination with boosters is strongly recommended. Uh, when symptomatic, timely diagnosis by testing is critical to informing treatment options, um, and uh, risk assessment is essential to identify what treatments uh, patients are eligible for. And again, we emphasize that important uh, time frame because early antiviral treatment within five to seven days, uh, we know, can reduce serious illness, hospitalization, and death. Uh, um, all right. So uh, at this point, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Scher. Uh, to talk about long COVID. Well, thanks, Trinette. We do have a number of questions, so maybe I'll I'll stop and ask. Uh, I'll answer a couple and then ask you um, before we get into long COVID. So, if you're not vaccinated or not boosted, you're already in a higher risk of uh, for complications. And I, I actually endorse that. I think that's true. That we have lots of different ways of assessing risk and the. Um, if you if you're not fully vaccinated, then your risk of more serious infection does go up. And 
I think that would that would increase my a sense of an indication for treating that individual. And then comparing malnupiravir and Paxlovid, since the efficacy is only 30%, would you try to use Paxlovid even if the patient has his drugs and has some drug interactions? And um, I'll give my answer and then maybe Trin, you, you can answer because mm-hmm. you're the pharmacologist and, the, and I would be turning to you also. But in general, I would try to use uh, to treat that patient with nermatrovir because of the benefits um, associated with it. It's short-term use. And as I mentioned, for the majority of interactions, it's manageable. The exact answer, I think, is, well, it depends on what those interactions are. If it's cancer chemotherapy, where I'm very reluctant to alter the dosage, then I would probably turn to an alternative. How do you answer that, Trin? Yeah, I 100% agree. It really does depend on, of course, what the drug interactions are. But in most situations, um, a five-day course uh, of Paxlovid um, can be utilized. Um, and I think you can make the alterations, ensure there's appropriate monitoring. I think the great benefit of close monitoring nowadays is that we have telehealth to ensure uh, we can um, closely follow up with our patients who do have those uh, drug interactions. But I, I, I agree, the, the data really supports uh, nermetrovir ritonavir. And so we want to uh, utilize that as much as possible. And if we can make modifications to uh, their uh, concurrent medications, we should attempt to. But of course, when it comes to um, uh, chemotherapy or any medications you're, you're a little hesitant to try to administer, then um, I, would, I would be hesitant only in those really rare situations if patients are on uh, numerous medications on the contraindications list where modifications is not ideal. There's a question on the choice of using dexamethasone compared to other glucocorticoids. And I'm really glad that you you mentioned this. In some of the slides that had been Trin had shown earlier, in the list of agents not to use in the ambulatory setting, there's actually good evidence that dexamethasone can make somebody worse in this setting. So we don't use steroids in the um, ambulatory setting for someone who's not hypoxic, who's not hospitalized. You're you're quite right that steroids have been shown to be effective in hypoxic hospitalized patients. And again, I would my answer would be um, any of there's several different types of steroids that can be used, and clinical trials have used um, a variety of different ones. It does not seem to matter if they're comparable doses, um, but that's a different patient population. So in this group that we're talking about of managing as outpatients, the steroids are not uh, recommended. And then, Trin, there's um, a number of folks who want to ask not only about rebound, but the problem of testing and variations in test results. What are your thoughts on reports that patients who've taken Paxlovid or Malnipiravir test positively two or three days after they started to test negatively at day five? So not only did they have rebound, but they, or symptom rebound, but they tested positive again. Yeah, I think that's a really great question. And I, I think um, before we want to think about the fact that uh, these tests are, of course, not 100% accurate. And so uh, especially testing immediately after that um, completion course, the positive test may reflect rebound, but it could also reflect um, non-infectious viral particles. And I think that's also important to uh, think about. But if the patient still remains um, symptomatic, then uh, we rebound is um on the differential, we want to be considering that. And if the patient, uh, and if we think that the patient truly has rebound, and I would 
still um, ensure that the patient, again, did complete their um, nirmeshmir ritonavir appropriately um, and encourage symptomatic management. Um, um, if they also, if they have tested positive and are remain symptomatic, uh, there are, and the, the, the guidance isn't as clear, but you, you also want to consider uh, resetting the isolation clock because some data has been shown that um, in, even in instances of rebound, the viral replication is active and patients can still remain um, 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 transmissive. And so um, you want to consider resetting that isolation clock to ensure um, they don't pass it on to, to other individuals. Okay, I'll stay, give you one more question on testing. So if somebody has a positive home test, but then they repeat it two or three days later and they're negative, can they cut down their quarantine and are they free to go out? <laughs> Maybe the most common question we get from our patients. <laughs> Yeah, that's a great question as well. And, and again, I just want to reemphasize the fact that um, the the test itself may be showing a false negative, and I would really adhere to the uh, the five day um, isolation only because patients can still be um, symptomatic and uh, not symptomatic, but can still be um, 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 shedding the virus at that time. It can still be um, a, um, have the ability to transmit that virus. And so I would still adhere to the five days. Um, I know trying to cut down your time short is a, a very appealing option, but there are um, the possibility of a potential uh, false negatives um, or it, the inability to have done the test correctly. And so I, I'd be uh, more cautious in that situation than not. Uh, very good. Um, yeah, I think it would be a good idea to Let's get through, um, we won't answer all the questions about long COVID, I promise you that, but let's um, finish our deck and then we have a couple of more questions that we'll have time to get back to. And I'm happy to try to finish with our shared ignorance about long COVID, which continues really to be a vexing problem in so many different ways. Um, one is just simply, what is it and how should we define it? Um, PISC stands for the post-acute symptoms of COVID. And, uh, and it's also more informally been called long COVID. And I think we're now using them synonymously. But the question is, what should the definition be? So WHO has said, uh, it's new symptoms that affect everyday function that come four weeks to three months after the first acute COVID-19 infection, and then last for two months or more. And it's very important to recognize that these symptoms wax and wane. It makes it very difficult to define this epidemiologically or to see if there's a response to therapy because they might get better for a few days and then return and get worse. One large debate is, should it include those people who had significant COVID-19 clinical signs and symptoms and were hospitalized? Many of those folks, a much higher percentage of those folks have ongoing symptoms, have end organ damage like heart attacks or strokes or uh, chronic kidney disease. Uh, I personally in, like to include them because that tells us about the totality of COVID-19's impact across a population. But it, there are, there's good evidence that it may have divergent pathogenesis and therefore should be identified and studied. And so for those of us who are trying to follow this literature, make sure you understand what is the study group that's being presented as you think about long COVID. Does it include those who are sicker who had post-hospitalization or not? It's very clear that we're going to need long-term follow-up for all of these folks with 
aggregated data from um, clinical cohorts, from medical records. The Some of the reassuring news is that it appears that over time, the majority of cases are self-limited and the majority either resolve or improve in three to six months. And I, I want to say very quickly that that doesn't eliminate the importance of those folks who are who seem to be in the minority who really have profound disabling symptoms that can last for months. And, and so I think it's all of these different groups um, that we're concerned with. We don't have a good biologic marker for PASE or for long COVID. And so that means we're relying on these clinical definitions and their fluctuations. So this is quite important. The estimates of the incidence of prevalence have been as high as 65 million people worldwide. That's a conservative estimate of 10% of the 651 million people who've been documented dead COVID-19. And I think everyone on this call understands that the actual number of cases is substantially more. We believe there was a point in December and January when literally one quarter of the population of the world had COVID all at the same time, the largest infectious disease epidemic at the same time that has ever been recorded in human history. So incidence rates overall, they they vary by whether or not someone's been hospitalized, also by whether or not they've been vaccinated. So of the non-hospitalized cases, it appears that a 10 to 30% of people will have some ongoing symptoms, that as high as 50 to 70% of people who've been in the hospital uh, can be affected. And then Note the smaller number, 10 to 12% of people who've been vaccinated. And to my mind, one of the additional arguments for those of you who are trying patiently to talk to the vaccine-hesitant patients that we care for, preventing, avoiding long COVID is definitely an additional incentive in my mind. It can occur at all ages uh, in in an acute phase, uh, disease phase severities. The highest percentage of diagnoses across all ages appears to be in middle age, 36 to 50. And the majority, because there's so many more patients who are actually not hospitalized, 80% of people are outside the hospital um, with their COVID. The majority of long COVID cases actually come from non-hospitalized patients who've had a mild or no acute illness. Um, And then again, patients with risk factors for more severe acute COVID-19 also appear to be more at risk for long COVID. So I was part of a group that did a literature review in the fall, looking at not only the incidence of a variety of different types of long COVID or PASC, but also the frequency with which it was severe. And we used a variety of different definitions for severe, meaning disabling and keeping somebody from work, requiring new or ongoing hospital care. So a variety of different definitions, and it was as high as 6 to 18% of all the different types of long COVID. Definitely, that was a higher number if someone had been hospitalized. It was also clearly more common in those people over age 65. And the argument we made in this editorial was that this is a major contribution to the severe manifestations of COVID-19. Up until this point, we'd been using our respiratory definition of hypoxia or admitted with pneumonia as the criteria for severe COVID. And it's clear other organ systems can be involved in long COVID itself is causing high morbidity and a strain on on health systems. If we think of pathogenesis, that would be a whole nother webinar. I won't uh, take you there.
but it includes such thing as immune dysregulation, the gut microbiota, as has been seen in early phases with HIV, appears to be involved in some patient populations. There's autoimmunity and immune priming. There's disruption of the endothelial cells and blood vessels and clotting mechanisms. Those two things have led to clots and a presentation with a cold limb or strokes or heart attacks. And then central nervous system alone, dysfunction with anosmia, with direct infection of cells in the central nervous system, and disruption of neurological signaling, including autonomous, autonomic dysfunction. And I think you can tell right away from this list of very diverse causes of long COVID that it's probably not one thing, that long COVID is a wastebasket that's including several different mechanisms of pathogenesis and therefore are likely to be treated by quite a varying range of uh, infections. And I will say that chronic infection with SARS-CoV-2, which is not common, has been associated with some of these symptom complexes in some patients. So there are some reservoirs of SARS-CoV-2, for example, in the gut or in the central nervous system that can be associated with prolongation of symptoms. So if I break that down, and again, there isn't really time to go all the way through this, but you will have these slides at, uh, and access to them. This was in a beautiful review uh, in uh, Nature Microbiology in 2023 that tried to relate the symptoms to underlying pathogenesis, chest pain and, and palpitations related to either myocardial infarction, myocarditis, or postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, POTS disease. Uh, there's cough and dyspnea related to abnormal gas exchange and the development of pulmonary fibrosis, immune dysregulation, as I mentioned, there is a syndrome of acute pancreatitis and also incident diabetes or worsening of diabetes, a variety of different GI types of signs and symptoms with full presentation of gastrointestinal illness. I mentioned the CNS effects with not only dysautonomia, but the MECSF chronic fatigue syndrome complex, which has real similarities to some of the phenotypes associated with long COVID, um, end organ damage, including liver, kidney, and spleen, the blood vessels that I mentioned uh, with microclots that seem to be available, uh, uh, accountable for some of the problems that have been associated with, uh, with myocardial damage and stroke. And then reproductive system abnormalities with erectile dysfunction, with uh, disrupted menstruation as a result of hormonal imbalances, there has been association with reduced sperm count. So this is a long list, and this is just sort of the tip of the iceberg that I'm sharing with you. So there's a huge development of a research complex that's looking at this. So looking at some what we do know, what we can say about some of the long COVID outcomes, some of our best data has come from Israel, where they've had uh, an enormous long experience with a very centralized health system. So looking at people over a period of a year, almost 2 uh, million citizens, those symptoms that were still present at a year included smell and taste abnormalities, brain fog, memory concentration problems, shortness of breath, weakness and fatigue, dizziness, and interestingly, a signal for streptococcal tonsillitis. Again, it was the middle age group in this cohort that was most heavily effective, although shortness of breath was more common in the elderly. And again, the signal that in this patient population, those who were vaccinated were 
less likely to experience dyspnea. So another argument for earlier vaccination. Um, very importantly, because this covered um, the early phases, there was no difference between the wild type alpha and delta variants. And again, the sense of some relief that for those experiencing long symptoms, most people had it in a mild degree and improved over time. So we also had a very nice um, couple of studies looking at breakthrough infections and the incidence of long COVID in people who had, who had had vaccinations. And so this was in this one Israeli study where you can see overall about 1,500 people who were vaccinated with the Pfizer vaccine. There were only 39 breakthrough infections in this group. So that's the good news is only 2.6%, but 19% of those individuals had persistent symptoms beyond six weeks. And in a study in the UK looking at 1.2 million users who were reporting dutifully on the presence of having gotten their vaccine, first dose and second dose, almost a million people, that a vaccination was associated with a 50% reduction in the incidence of long duration symptoms that lasted over 28 days. So I take this to be, and I share this with my patients that one of the reasons, strongest reasons to my mind for a vaccination is to avoid this uncertainty with long COVID, which really can be a very debilitating, not only physically, but the uncertainty of where it's going, how long it will last with its variability, takes a mental health toll on patients. And this was another meta-analysis that tried to pull together 17 different studies looking at vaccination and long COVID. And in this case, vaccination before SARS-CoV-2 infection reduced the risk of developing long COVID, and two doses were seen to be more effective than one. And that was a durable effect. Um, and then more recently, again, this is a preprint that showed looking specifically at the impact of treatment of nermatrovir and ritonavir in the VA, uh, patients treated from May to June of 2022, of whom almost 56% were vaccinated and boosted, and then 24% had only had two vaccines and then 16% were not vaccinated. Um, you can see overall that the risk of PASC was reduced 26%, the risk of hospitalization 30%, and the risk of death 49%. So a 26% reduction in the likelihood of long COVID, to my mind, is another terrific benefit of, uh, of the use of treatment. And so I, I often will tell people in, in the argument of whether or not they should take nermatrovil ritonavir, it's not only to prevent this acute hospitalization, but there's a 25% reduction in uh, the incidence of long COVID. This was another one of the preprints from the nermatrovir group showing per 100 prescriptions of nermatrovir and ritonavir, two fewer PASC cases. And I've had a lot of discussion with clinicians. Many say, well, that's only two out of 100, that's a lot of people treated for a small number of benefit. But in that same group, there were uh, one fewer hospitalizations for every 100 treated persons between 30 to 90 days of infection. So it's a double benefit of reducing hospitalizations and reducing uh, the incidence of long COVID. Um, I definitely don't have time to go over this list, but I'll share with you sort of what I think is exciting in the literature for attempts at studying therapies that are targeting some of the most promising studies. For example, 
using pacing for people who have severe dyspnea and fatigue um, for their cognitive dysfunction, um, the use of uh, autoimmune acting agents, the BC007. For POTS disease, there are a number of therapies available like beta blockers and compression stockings. This is largely supported by the POTS literature and by the uh, chronic fatigue syndrome literature. Um, and so we're, I think we're learning a lot from the two diseases are, um, are overlapping to some extent, and that's, that's been very helpful. Um, for the GI symptoms, not surprisingly, there's an active group looking at probiotics. For viral persistence, there are reports of individuals and in small groups where antiviral therapy, nirmatrovir in one case, valacyclovir or valgancyclovir in another case, have been associated with uh, individual benefits. None of these are proven to be effective. I'm not recommending them. I'm only sharing with you that these are what are being studied. For the dysautonomia, for example, there were some glowing reports of stellate ganglion blockade, which Im impacted some of the symptoms with uh, dysautonomia. And uh, also transcutaneous vagal stimulation is now entering clinical trials. And then anticoagulants and apheresis have been used in some of the uh, abnormal clotting mechanisms. And um, it's just a, a set of studies in their infancy that I hope will bring um, benefit to our patients. And so I wanna finish with this section and then we'll try to take our little bit of remaining time for the remainder of your question. So again, this definition, something that occurs after the first month, up to three months, um, and lasts for two months or more is the WHO definition. It's affecting a large number of people, anywhere from 10 to 30% of non-hospitalized patients. And for hospitalized patients, half or more, and 10 to 12% of vaccinated patients. And we saw examples where severe cases occurred as many as 6 to 18% of patients. Um, we've seen some evidence that vaccination can reduce long COVID by as much as 25 to 50%, and also some early evidence of benefit with antiviral therapy, though the results there are mixed. We've also seen some studies that where it wasn't so clear that it was having that impact. And there's so many research questions, there are too many uh, really to list, um, but it certainly is, for those folks who are severely affected, um, a very pressing need for, for more data. I'd like to thank Dr. Shearer and Dr. Boo for that excellent discussion, and thank you to our listeners for joining in. As a reminder, to view the slide set for this podcast and the full program on best practices for early outpatient COVID-19 diagnosis and antiviral treatment, on the Clinical Care Options Practicing Clinicians Exchange and ProCE websites, click on the links in the show notes for this episode. And please be sure to check back regularly for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. Thank you. Thank you.